0: Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. Today, I am thrilled to introduce our audience to Rani Piranik. Rani, welcome to the conversation. Hey, Melissa, thank you so much. So I'm gonna touch briefly on your bio, which is extremely long. I'm pulling out components of it to share with the audience and then we'll get into your story. So let me share who you are. So Rani Piranik is currently the EVP and global CFO of Houston-based Worldwide Oilfield Machine and is the incoming CEO for the organization. Rani's been named one of the top 25 most influential women in energy in 2022. Rani's passionate about mentoring the next generation of leaders and currently serves as the chairwoman of the Puranic Foundation, located in India and the US, a not-for-profit that provides educational opportunities for under-resourced children in both India and the US. Rani's um, newest title is as an author, and uh, in November the 1st her book titled Seven Letters to My Daughter is released. It's based and inspired on her life story and written as a gift to her daughters. Now Rani in two days time you leave to tackle base camp at Everest so um, can't wait to hear all of the elements of your fascinating story. Once again (laughs) welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much. Can I ask um, for people in our audience who haven't had a chance to come across you before? Let's just kick off with me asking, who are you as a human being? And then (laughs) let's get into your life story from there. Sure. As a human being, I love that question so much.
1: Uh, I'm just a positive person who believes in the next generations, who values the older generations, and basically who I am is a bridge. I'm a bridge between what used to be in terms of great values, traditions, and uh, philosophies, and bridging it to what I see as the future, not just within after my lifetime,
0: way beyond my lifetime. I say I have a 200 year plan, so I'm a bridge. Incredible. So I've got to ask about Everest firstly. So let's, uh, let's get that out of the way. What inspired Everest, assuming this is your first time? My first time,
1: and uh, I recently turned 50. So last year, I decided, you know, I want to be at the highest peak uh, of this planet, what I say, closest to God as possible. So decided to uh, go to Everest and that was the uh, that was the inspiration originally I wanted to be at base camp on my birthday which is April 24th but you know life sort of happens and I will be leaving in two days
0: brilliant well best of luck as you head there so okay. let's jump straight back into your story so where were you born let's go through some of those formative years and, and work our way through your incredible uh, career as well
1: Sure, I love that. So my parents, actually, they were already settled here in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, so they were already here in the United States. Um, Just, I guess, my luck had to happen where I was born in India, but when I was basically a 6 week baby, I was brought here to Houston. That's when my dad relocated all of us to Houston, Texas. So the first 17 years of my life, I was raised in Houston, Texas, and then from 18 until 35, I lived in India. That's mm-hmm. Actually, had had arranged marriage when I was 19. So that was a whole other, uh, you know, life chapter, if you will. And then after 2007, I decided to turn another chapter of my life and return back to Houston, uh, gather my life back again, really focus on what my life meant, what my purpose really is. And uh, now here I am. I'm settled here in Houston, Texas
0: fantastic so what prompted the move from being raised in houston and you're talking to us from houston today what prompted that move from houston to india
1: sure um- I've always been passionate about uh, Indian classical singing. So you can imagine, I used to sing from four to six hours here, even as a teenager in Houston, Texas, had a great teacher. And he said, you know what? You have the potential to be a professional singer. So why don't you go to India and really learn under a guru, took it to heart, did that. So as soon as I graduated from Lamar High School here in Houston, decided to go to India for about a year. And uh, you know, learn my singing, sing my heart out, and return back to Houston. That didn't quite happen though. So that was my impetus to go to Pune, India. Uh, that's where my family is originally from. Uh, while I was there, I went to a business college uh, just because I didn't want to, you know, waste a year. Was singing my heart out, and I had some spare time in the evenings. So there was a little slum, poverty area uh, right next to our sort of neighborhood. And one thing led to the next, and I sort of volunteered to teach. Two or three kids, that two or three kids turned into 60. And before you knew it, I was running an after school program for, you know, very, very low income children. And I realized that was something that was so dear, near and dear to my heart. I did not want to stop it. And it went way beyond academics. So, anyways, long story short is that the singing is what took me to India. And then just a number of circumstances that happened within India while I was there that led me to being married and living there for another 17 years.
0: And are you happy to talk about that? Because you did you you got married quite young, didn't you?
1: Yes, I got married quite young. Yeah, because I I, you know I could talk about that. Unfortunately, it happens uh, to a number of women, and if you're out there, do know that you're not alone, right? So while I was I was um, all of eighteen years old, and while I was teaching all of these beautiful children, uh, aged between you know six to fourteen, very young kids. Um, we were singing, dancing, playing, debates, uh, helping them to express who they are, learning English and academics, right? So all of this was great and good. Um, my mom came to visit me from Houston and just wanted to check in on me because I was living by myself at that time. And said, hey, Ronnie, what are you doing? I'm really scared for you. You know, you've got all these kids, you need a security guy to just make sure he keeps an eye on you. I said, yeah, didn't bother much. Sure, mom, do what you do. It just so happened that after three months, um, when, all my kids had left, and he would come by, whatever. He's the same security guy that molested me. So um, I was not raped, thankfully. And I would say that was the first time that I felt God, if you will. I felt such a strong sense of strength that I had never in my life felt. But I was able to literally fight him and take him out of the house. I still remember that very vividly. So unfortunately, if this happens to any other woman out there, do know that it, you're not alone. And there is a way to overcome all of those those feelings. And it does take time, but give yourself time. What I did not have on my side at that time was grace and time. Everybody got scared. I got scared. I was only 18, didn't know how to express it. Uh, my mother, when this all happened to me, my, my mother had already left. She was back in Houston, Texas. Uh, one thing led to the next and the only thing she knew to protect me was Ronnie get married I said no way take me back to Houston she said no you need to get married Uh, you're at such a young age you really can't challenge your mother at that time right so um, I was married within the year and uh, to a great great family I mean no complaints right so I was 19 he was 23 he ran his own business it was part of a political family Um, uh, great great people great hearts the only thing is is that they're There, um, it was a joint family. The whole culture just shifted for me. I came from a nuclear family, you know, sang, danced, talked out loud. I was very deeply engrossed with my dad's business, even as a teenager, understood business. So, even when I was married, I understood business. I've always understood a business family and and the responsibility that comes with it. So, for me, when I got married, it was a business transaction. Mm. It was like, apparently, I need to be married. You want a wife, you have a business to run, which I'm very, very familiar with that responsibility. Uh, Let's do it. So I was married there. I had both children. Uh, Well, I had my children here in Houston, Texas. I just came here because this is all I knew in terms of medical uh, safety and and just security, but raised my children in India. And when my daughter was uh, three years old, she went to an all girls school and believe this, how things lead from one to the next. All girls' school. And as I was dropping her, her off at, on her first day, I come out and I see all these security guards. And you can imagine the alarm bells that go off in my mind go, oh no, wait a second. What if my daughter's not safe? And what if something happens where she can't speak up or say anything? She's only three years old. I found a way to get back into school. So this is the part where I say to all the women, you can find a way to overcome those insecurities and those fears and even those areas of guilt where did I do something wrong yes. right I found a way to get back into school and say hey I just need a way to be close to my daughter and dance because I had a dance background from Houston Texas I did ballet I did yoga I did modern dance I mean all of it I said I'll grab every bit of it that I know even Indian classical and I will be a dance teacher and the first thing out of that te- that principal's mouth was well we can't pay you I said don't pay me not a problem I'll stick around. So me sticking around there became a voice and a platform, not just for my own daughter, but for all the girls that were there. I started teaching. I started facilitating dance to enable to empower all those girls. And I was working with girls from the age of nine to 14. So that's kind of like been my my go-to age, if you will, right? Destined for me. And uh, it just took off from there. And then I started my own dance company, which was for leadership. So that was my life in India
0: for 17 to 19 years. So then at 35, it was back to Houston. Is that right? That's right. That's okay. Right. So tell us through that. Take us through that, um, that time in your life. That time
1: in my life. So you can imagine I've got this flourishing dance company, very involved in the community. Um, Everyone now starts to know me as this lady who's empowering children, teenagers, housewives, corporates. I mean, I'm all over the place. My message has always been give yourself space, be who you are, boldly, courageously, be authentically who you are. You can be respectful when you speak up. And if you don't have the ability to speak up, you can still make your own way. At the age of 35, I finally said, "Ronnie, you need to practice for yourself what you've been preaching to the world. You need to be bold. You need to be courageous. You haven't done anything wrong if you speak up, right? So at 35, that's what I did. I spoke up for myself. It was probably one of the hardest decisions I had to make because you're kind of going against the cultural grain. And at that time when I said, and I opened my my mouth to say this, my entire family, my husband, children, all of that, it went through the most stressful time ever, right? So my husband, it was very hard for him to understand what I was saying even because I played along for 15 years. I played along, did the right, I was the right wife. I did the roles perfectly. It was a business transaction. I know how to do business. I can keep emotions to the side and do business. I'm very good at that. I guess that was my firewall. Uh, so that's what brought me back to Houston, because that, this is the only place I knew that was safe enough where I could call it home and I could somehow, had no idea how, find my way.
0: So you left, you left your family at that point, found yourself in Houston, um, determined to sort of use your voice um, and, and be authentically you. Where did that take you next?
1: Where it took me next is a huge uh, period of my life seven years of my life actually i write it in my book as well the most traumatic the most stressful the most challenging time of my life uh when i decided to leave india it was a part it was a time where uh, again you know women go through this i'm sure men go through this where relationships become so toxic and it's not that it happens overnight it's been gradually building 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 and all of a sudden you come to a breaking point and it's you neither parties can do it anymore neither parties know how to deal with it and it becomes abusive it basically becomes abusive so what brought me to houston was a place that i could almost park myself but i parked myself with no immigration status with no financial stability with nowhere to go in terms of a professional career because i left everything back in india uh, and I had to figure out what that meant to start over again, to the extent where I couldn't bring my kids, my, my daughters with me either. What would I do with them? I didn't know if I was going to work in McDonald's, uh, figure out my immigration status. Uh, what was it? And because divorce is not looked upon as acceptable in India, it was a struggle. Mm. It was a struggle. I was not getting my divorce until I gave up a few things, sacrificed a few things, whether it was financial status. I mean, you name it, everything, right? And on top of that was the custody part. I was not going to get custody until I checked off a lot of these boxes, which took time. And that was seven years of my life. So struggling between India, kind of organizing my personal life, trying to figure that out with my children and trying to just gain some traction, some footing for myself. The only place I knew to go was Worldwide Oracle Machine where I had worked as a child, that was home for me. I knew the the people and that was like family. So I asked my dad, what should I do, dad? And it was initially, it was hard for my dad to accept that I have actually left India. He was like, oh, she'll probably go back after a week or two weeks. I'm I'm still there in his house, I have nowhere else to go. And in about six weeks, he's like, all right, looks like you're staying, what do you want? I said, I need to work, (laughs) right? Um, So go figure it out, Is what his answer to me was. I went there a few weeks, realized that there's no HR department, people has always been my passion. Um, even when I was the founder, CEO of my dance school. So I started doing that. And that's Absolutely. led.
0: Your dad, just to fill a gap in for our audience. So um, so this company is a company that your dad started a long time ago. So when you reference having kind of grown up there and things like that, you you did grow up there.
1: Oh, yes. Let me clarify that I did grow up there. So my dad started this company when I was three years old, so much so that uh, we didn't have any money as per to say he had two jobs. Uh, I watched him grow this business from three people when I used to sleep sleep on the pantry floor Mm
0: -hmm.
1: to when I left uh, as a teenager, I think we were about like a 12 million dollar company. At that time, with maybe fifty or sixty people, so not a very large company. But I saw his progress. I mean, I I rode the uh, drove the forklifts and I moved pallets and I labeled the inventory, you know, uh, bins and all of that. And I and I was his accounting, sort of back office accounting intern, if you will, with my mom. So yes, I did grow up in that business.
0: Did you and was- study? Um, did you study engineering or?
1: I did not study engineering. No, that would have been my track if I would have stayed back in Houston. Okay, but I am a finance accounting uh, graduate, and then later on, I got my MBA.
0: Do you think initially, because uh, I do remember you telling me that story about you would have stayed on, you would have stayed on a certain track had you not gone to India, studied engineering, and potentially followed followed your father into the company. That's so true. That, that was kind of where you saw that script going. Um, and then obviously, as you shared with us, it didn't go to plan at all. We're in India, um, and so on and so forth. So back in Houston now, dad said, yes, you can come and work with us, but figure out where. So we hmm. have kind of looked and gone. HR looks like a good starting point for me.
1: Yep. The HR looks good. Cause there's no one over there. So develop the whole HR program, training, competency, you name it, all of it. But it gave me a chance to really hear people's stories because that's what I do, right? I used to facilitate voice. I used to facilitate leadership. Who are you? How can I help you to be your best version? Um, I did it with kids and with corporates. Well, this is my chance to do it here. It gave me a chance to understand all of WM's processes, gaps, the global vision, um, where dad wanted to take it, where it was actually headed, all of those areas. So then once my personal life settled down, which was in 2012, so five years, actually, since from seven to 12, uh, that's when I said, all right, I need to get my life really back on track. So I was 40 years old at the time, uh, applied to Rice University, got in, graduated in two years with an MBA in finance. And then things started to take off for me. Um, So from 14 to 16, I traveled all of our 11 locations around the world. Actually, at that time, it was eight. I opened up three later on. Uh, so eight locations around the world, understood every person. I knew every person by name. And by that time we were about 2,500 uh, people. Now we're 4,000 people. Uh, that helped me to understand what it meant to lead this company. And I have a philosophy about leading. People ask me this all the time and maybe you, our, our viewers would want to know. Uh, there's a very famous quote by A.A. Milne. Uh, he's the one who wrote Winnie the Pooh. I love him, yeah. by the way. And the quote says that, uh, don't follow me because I may not lead and don't go in front of me because I may not follow. But if you walk beside me, we can walk together. And that has literally been my philosophy, even up until now, it doesn't matter what title people give me or awards that I am recognized with. I will walk with people because people have the answers. People have their own dreams. And if we can support that and they can support our dreams, we do it together. It's a win-win for everybody. As I said to you, I'm a bridge, right? So just I'll be that bridge.
0: Um, Can I ask you, it just feels like the right time to kind of ask you with that leadership perspective that you've shared, do you think leaders are born or made? It's a great
1: question. I think leaders, uh, good leaders, great leaders have a basic uh, personality. I do think so. So leaders are born, I do believe that, but they can be made extraordinary. And when I say they can be made or extraordinary is that if they accept the challenges that come their way, if they really learn from not just the opportunities, but from people, from different professionals, if they're continuously learning, then they can be made
0: even better. So- you know, with that in mind, thinking about your own journey, what would you call out from a leadership perspective as a couple of things that really elevated your own leadership?
1: Uh, sure. So one thing is, I uh, if I could just say it really quickly, I realize that there are four stages to leadership. And when I talk about leadership, you know, usually people think of corporate settings. I say that every person is a leader. And when you ask me the question, are leaders born or made, it depends on what leadership area you want to define yourself in. Mothers are leaders, so are fathers. Grandparents are our children, are leaders, even kids lead, right? So in every area of leadership, if you really want to succeed, this is what I've learned over my past, whatever, 40 years, well, not 40, 25 years, four stages. Number one is to listen. Listen, listen continuously. As a leader, we really don't have a voice yet until we listen. Listening is knowledge, knowledge is power. Use that power then to reflect back. Once you listen, that's the first stage of good leadership. Second is to stabilize. So whatever you've heard, stabilize those frictions, those sort of uh, peaks and troughs, stabilize all of that. So people in the room, people in that same situation understand that we're on the same page, we're playing at the same level, you're no one higher or lower right so stabilize that entire thing that t- that entire emotion and opportunity third is to inspire once everything is stabilized now start to inspire people because they all have the answers to move forward every single person mom dad cousin corporate nonprofit every person is a leader in their own way that they w- if they would want to be inspire that facilitate that strength and then the fourth one is I think the key to leadership, to being a really good leader. Lead to let go. We are not mortals, we, sorry, we are not immortal. I know, what if we were, we are not <laughs> mortal. And I think this is the most important lesson that all of us as leaders need to learn. We're not here forever, right? So if I can lead to let go, without keeping anything to myself, without having any insecurity of, or any notion of competition. Will somebody you know supersede me because they seem to be better? If they are better, let them be because that means that's not your path. Your path would be somewhere else. So lead to let go. Those are really the four stages of leadership that I
0: see that have led me to where I am. Mm. So are there formative experiences that you would call out or, um, you know, in you know choose two of those stages as an example are there things you can share with the audience that you know maybe were particularly challenging to tackle at the point in time but but helped you
1: sure there's one story which always resonates with me so um being a minority and women-owned company i said well let's get certified no one really took the effort to do that so it took about two years to you know be certified, get all the paper paperwork in order being in the oil and gas industry, we usually supply to the drilling contractors. But I had a vision to supply to the majors, the Chevron, the Exxon Mobil, you know, just the majors, right? I started getting in, being in touch with those companies because they had special programs to recognize, uh, you know, under underutilized businesses, right? For two years, two years, I had developed relationships, and I was just on the verge of getting our first break with two of the majors. And at that time, our sales team, male-dominated, came to my father, who, of course, is my boss at the time and still CEO, said, oh, by the way, Ronnie's making a, a lot of uh, headway. That's fine. But um, we'll take it from here. She's a woman. She doesn't know these relationships. We've been in the business longer than she has. I mean, I don't know what she thinks she's going to accomplish. So she needs to hand over everything to us. All of this is done back.
0: Mm.
1: Okay. So when I talk about listening, I was listening to the gaps and I was trying to figure out a way to go forward. I was inspiring my people, but that inspiration didn't quite go in the way that I wanted to. They took it for themselves, but that's fine. That's fine. Still on my path of leadership. So I stabilized, stabilized and then inspired them. Uh, And this last bit is when my CEO of the company, my dad, he approaches me and said, you know what? Uh, We're really, really, Uh, shaking up the waters here. You really are. I said, well, I haven't done anything wrong. I think it's going to be great for the company if we get this break with the majors. He said, yeah, I think we will get the break, but not from you. You'll need to hand it over. I said, well, why do I need to hand it over? Well, let me tell you, Ronnie, in the long run, it's going to benefit you. Just trust me. That's all he said. Just trust me. My heart broke. I mean, my heart literally broke. Two years of fighting, going against the grain, doing all of that, right? And literally developing those relationships where there's a PO that's right about to come to our doorstep and Ronnie's got to hand it off. I said, okay, if I'm going to be the leader, let me let go. Let me let it go. I brought it to a stage, which is great. I mean, honestly, anybody could just take it and run with it, which they did. So I called up the people, handed over my accounts. And the next morning we had a sales meeting. Now, I could have sort of, you know, shied away, been embarrassed, been humiliated, saying why, or been just angry, right? I said, no, I'm leading. and If I'm leading to let go, then I'm going to show up to that sales meeting, be proud of what I've done, and be very proud and courageous to say, here you go, take it, now run with it. Now I'm going to go do something else. And that's what happened.
0: So... Can I ask, because that's just a fascinating story on so many different levels, you're the incoming CEO now. Mm -hmm. If history repeated itself and you had an incredibly talented female in your team who was seeing the gaps and, you know, driving this change and those sorts of things, and the same thing happened, how would that, um, how would you approach that situation? Oh, I would
1: let that female absolutely run with it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue of uh, communication, right? Yeah. I think if people are under, if, if people are told, and again, being an empathetic leader, that's who I am. Uh, we need to communicate and tell the story. You know why is this person doing what she or he is doing? And therefore why should we support it as a team? not as an individual? I mean, an organization is just as good as its team. That's that, That's how it is. Good people make a good business.
0: So I would explain it differently. Learning from situations around you. So <laughs> t- tell us about, um, you know, there's a lot of people in our audience who are in male-dominated industries. Tell us about operating in a male-dominated industry. Uh, so I get
1: this question quite a bit. Uh, first of all, I would tell all of the women out there, take that notion away that you're a woman and therefore you're different, right? Go in with merit, go in with the confidence that you know that you have, uh, you've earned a certain um, position for a reason, no matter what, which level of that career ladder you may be, you've earned it. You're worthy of it. So go in with that confidence, that merit. And once you're there, uh, your merit will speak for itself. My, you know, uh, I've heard this say all the time, said, said all the time, uh, no one can challenge excellence. No one can defeat excellence. So if you go in with that, it doesn't matter what your gender is.
0: Did you ever get, um, you know, on the way through your career, did you ever run up against some of the double binds that sometimes, um, you know, our audience share with us where, you know, you're too aggressive versus assertive, um, you know, or too hard, too soft, you know, never just right from a leadership point of view. Have you experienced any of that throughout your career?
1: For sure. Uh, So again, I like to be an empathetic leader, which means I have a, I think I have a bandwidth for a lot of grace. I will be quiet. So the listening leader, I do listen quite a bit. Um, I won't jump in and just, you know, give my opinion. I'm a collaborative leader as well, which means I'm going to take everybody's perspective and opinion into uh, into hand before making a decision. All of those things have been taken advantage of. Oh, well, she's too quiet. She's too meek. She's uh, that. But when it comes to making a decision and being very assertive, well, she's pretty strong. You know, of course, you get all of that. Uh, but it doesn't matter. And what I also realized being a, being a woman is our physical appearance. That's the first thing that's judged. It's like, well, what is she wearing? Why is she wearing that? You know, uh, again, for me, it's always been about, I'm going to show up as who I am. Let my merit speak. What I wear should not matter. And of course, when I go into let's say, um, when I know that the entire board is going to be male or where I'm going is going to be predominantly male, I go in representing all the women that are gonna come behind me, right? So I will be at my best representing what the best possible that I can so that the next woman who's coming behind me, who's after that bridge that I'm building, it'll make it a little easier for her. Uh, But yeah, we get that all the time, but it's just, what I realize is all cultural. So, women should not take any of this personally. Really, not take it purposefully. There's a purpose why all this is happening. They don't know any better if they did that, you know, they would be better. So, if it's not a personal um, attack, then keep to your purpose and keep going. Then, everything else that's not uh, part of your merit or part of your credit, it'll fall off.
0: What prompted, um, you know, I don't think I explored it enough at the time, but when you talk about, You know, and I, I'm assuming it was around 35 or so. What prompted the kind of realization that it's really time to practice what you were telling other people? Um, you know, was there was there a moment for you, um, or was it a building realization? Like, what what was that?
1: Uh, there was a moment. So, again, you know, relationships kind of deteriorate over time, correct? It's, just, it's not just one incident. Um, over the course of my marriage, which was for 15 years at that time, um, I started getting more involved into politics and uh, was running a campaign to be a council, well, equivalent of a council member. And at that time I started getting threats from the opponents going, hey, you better step down. And I mean, that was fine. I understood threats just kind of virtually but then I had two people come to my gate and said, if you don't step down, your daughters will be in trouble. And when that happened, again, all these alarms start to go off, right? So wait a second, I'm not going into politics for this to handle that. And when I went back and I told my, at that time, my married family, uh, they're like, oh, don't worry about it. We'll just hire a security guy.
0: <sighs>
1: You've got to be kidding me. After all of this, that one, that one um, designation just doesn't go down well with me, folks. And that's when I realized uh, there's no seriousness and there's really no respect or regard for who I am, what I stand for. And unless I do it for myself, no one else is going to do it for me. And honestly, I would tell you, it's no fault of anybody else's. I mean, they would ask for something that I would give. So they expected it, right? So it was expected,
0: yeah. What are you most excited about with your, uh, your sort of forthcoming CEO role? I think what I'm excited about is the vision that I
1: have. And the vision is to really create this dynamic leadership team uh, who can take WOM 10X. So right now I have a goal that uh, by 2027 to 2029, we will become a $1 billion company and everything that's required with it, right? So the infrastructure, the technology, the advancements, um, the locations, all of it. I really am so excited about that, and I'll tell you why I'm excited about that. So it's not just about a dollar. My goal is that in the next five years, yes, one billion dollars, but also we as a company should have impacted, positively impacted, over one billion lives. That's my passion, positively smiling, making their life better, even if it is with the technology, with the way that we are creating our HR uh, policies, and you know, just creating career pathways. For the next generations to come and enter our business and our company, and also diversifying, really diversifying into different industries, I can see that clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, very excited. I call them WAM villages that I do want to create at some point, where there's a pipeline between you know middle schools, high schools, different types of companies, um, and just having a really wholesome uh, community that cares for each other, that has their own independent livelihood, and uh, really is, is concerned about, really understands who they are as a self, what, what their connection is with the community, and they're also equally aware about the environment. So it's about the next gen.
0: It sounds so exciting, Rani. I, um, I, I wonder, in all the conversations that I have with all of the incredible leaders that I speak to... Um, you know, everyone shares with me that there's points where, you know, that inner critic kind of pipes up about, you know, can I do this and those sorts of things. And I remember a terrific gift before I stepped into a CEO role where um, one of my predecessors said to me, you realize when you step into a new role, everyone is just shitting themselves. Um, and, you know, all of that's completely normal. So I just wonder as you approach this, you know, are there, Are there feelings, are there inner critic or inner voices around your capability to do it? And how do you manage that?
1: Such a great question. Absolutely, there are that inner critic. Oh, my goodness. I will tell you just a few months ago, I said to myself, I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. I'm not an engineer. This is a technology company. How am I going to do all of this? Completely had a breakdown. And that's what actually one of my daughters, both my daughters individually, they said, mom, you don't have to know everything, but you can find the right people. You talk about teams all the time. This is your time to get up and not ask for help. But if that's the thing, ask for help, find your people, find the company people. You're not in it by yourself. And that was sort of my turning point. I said, you know what? You're right. I'm good at what I'm good at, but I'm equally um, cognizant of what I don't know, and I'll be okay with that. And then find the right people to fill those gaps. But yeah, totally inner critic. I mean, it still happens.
0: <laughs> what a um, what a wonderful gift from your daughters, um, which <laughs> kind of makes me think about. Well, what inspired you writing this book? Um, you know, which which I know in your own words is as a gift to your own daughters. What inspired that?
1: Yeah, I think uh, it was that I if I can make not just my daughters, but any daughter, uh, all the daughters of the world, if I can make their life a little easier, a little better, that they wouldn't have to go through all the lessons I had to learn and maybe read about them, understand them, internalize them, uh, then that was my hope. So the lessons are really about love. Everyone wants to ask about love. What is it? How does it? What are those shades, right? Uh, Through the different roles that we play as women uh, of just... mm, like of of, of leadership, what, does, what are those leadership lessons that I learned on the way that sure have made me successful and, and made me approachable also as a leader? And then legacy, what does it mean to establish your legacy? What does that mean? And in my book, what inspired me is when I was looking at my daughters going, oh, I was once seven, I was once 14, I was once 21. And the lessons that I learned at every seven stages of my life have been so unique. So that's why seven letters to my daughters, because every six years I have one letter of love, leadership, and legacy. That so they inspired me.
0: That sounds <laughs> absolutely fascinating. Let's talk about you grew up in, in probably two very distinct cultures and very different cultures Was there any, um, you know, often in conversation with people, I hear, you know, people weren't really sure where they belonged. Like, was there any of that for you growing up? Very much so. What a great question, by the way, Melissa. Yes, absolutely. So when I
1: was my first 17 years of my life in Houston, Texas, my mother was very Orthodox, Hindu. So we read scripture every day. We were an Indian household. I mean, people in India would say that we were more Indian than folks back home, right? right? In India. So that was a big uh, uh, shift because my outside world, my school world was, you know, American, you know, open-minded, op- think openly, you know, critical thinking, all of that question. It's okay to question, yeah. but at home wasn't the, the case. That was very, very different. And uh, when I was growing up here in Houston, I was kind of like the misfit, right? So I didn't have friends, yep. dressed differently, acted differently, so completely understood. And the funny part is, is when I was in India, then all of a sudden i was looked at as an american yes (laughs) right uh because for whatever reason it's just that way that all of a sudden i was an american i was not indian Uh, and then you have to learn how to fit into that so the question of who i am was very um was was daunting actually from the very beginning so i've always leaned on my spirituality and my understanding of spirituality so You know, one thing just kind of leads to the next, and you understand, I now completely understand who I am, and I could never say that I am just Indian or just American. Mm. I really do see myself as sort of a global melting pot, best practices person, (laughs) so uh, this is really who I am. But at the end of the day, I would still say uh, being authentically me is um, what I say is to to be free, to be free. And to be free means to be uh, very, very aware of our life. And if I can be aware of my life, then I'm living free. And that's my authentic self.
0: You come across as someone who is, at least now, very comfortable being out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Is that a deliberate kind of choice, like, have you always been out of your comfort zone like you know I guess that just fascinates me about your story I think so so my tagline
1: is there's always a way and ever since I was a child if someone said oh well Ronnie can't do that oh that's the wrong thing to say to Ronnie <laughs> yes,
0: <she can>. so,
1: <laughs> if I did not know how to do it and if someone didn't think that I could do it I would I still am more than willing to be out of my comfort zone because I do know that this world has so much to offer in terms of lessons and just for me to learn and to grow. My purpose is to be my best self. And until I'm my best, I can't give my best. My passion is to give back as much as I can. So if I can be my best, I can give my best. And for that, I need to be in my uncomfortable zones quite a few times.
0: So you're still um, you're chairing the Puranic Foundation, which is still very focused on education. What are some of your plans in that space?
1: Uh, so my daughter now, my oldest daughter, she is the executive manager for, executive director, sorry, for Pranic Foundation. She takes care of all the outreach programs here. But the goal is wherever we have a WAM location around the globe is to connect the philosophies of education and educating the under-resourced uh, to be successful in limited resources in all these other locations. So we will have a Pranic Foundation-based school with our WAM mentors being a part of the sort of a community um, uh, fabric of the school itself. Mm -hmm. So that's the vision for that. And along with that, independently, not just Pranic Foundation, but we're also starting our own charter middle school, which is based on international business and entrepreneurship. And once this takes off, then we'll also expand those into different cities as well. But uh, yeah, the pipeline is for our kids to really understand. Again, I keep going back to the self, community and the environment if once we understand this holistic and integrated approach then our future generations are set.
0: Rani you know I'm passionate about seeing as many females um, move into CEO roles as they can I think it's such a fabulous role and I can't wait to see the success that you have with the role why do you think um, you know the pace is still pretty slow at females coming through into those senior leadership roles what are your thoughts on that
1: I think it's about uh, priority, not necessarily opportunity anymore. I've seen the shift where, uh, given an opportunity, if women are available, then they're they're able to rise up. Uh, especially after COVID, I would say that many women have taken different decisions as to what their priorities are, and you know, respectfully, and so have men, right? So not just yes. women. Yes. But if your merit and if your experience qualifies for you to be uh, at that CFO CEO level then uh, I think going forward, you will get that opportunity. I really do think so.
0: Okay. What would be your advice to people who are sitting on the fence about whether they should?
1: Well, you'll never know unless you try. So, first of all, um, speak up. And when you speak up, you don't have to be arrogant or be like a man. No, be who you are. And if being a woman means being soft-spoken, that's okay. Do be respectful. Because remember, every, per- every person has a backstory, whether they're a man or a woman. And let give them a chance as well. Like I said, if you even hear a no, don't take that no as that's it. You're never going to ask again. That no is basically a delay. It's not a, it's not a delete button. It's just a delay. So keep going and keep trying. Eventually, we'll get there.
0: I love that. That's wonderful advice. Can I ask you the final question I ask everybody, which is from your perspective what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change?
1: Excellent question. So it's a loaded question brave, feminine, and leadership, right? Brave feminine leadership for me means be open to change. As women, we are continuously changing. Um, I'm sure men are as well, but I couldn't talk on that on their behalf. But as women, really from childhood, we are continuously changing, uh, whether we become a wife, a mother, a daughter, all of that. Uh, As you move into your 50s and 60s, you know, our bodies are changing. Physically, we're changing. Mentally, we're changing. So be brave. Be brave and accept all those changes. Don't you don't? If you're at 50 years old, you don't need to want to be 18 and want to be 16 or 35. Embrace all those changes, that's being brave. Because with those changes, if you expect your mind to be mature, well, then your body cannot be carefree like a 16 year old. Your body is also going to be as mature. That's, being, that's the feminine part. So be brave, be feminine, and being a leader really is that. Be compassionate. That's who you are as a brave feminine. Know that everything is changing. Uh, People always ask me how to maintain that balance of, you know, work and life. Again, brave feminine leadership is knowing that that balance also is continuously changing. There is no defined point of a balance. So embrace all of it and honestly take every moment in as if those are your, those are your awards. Every successful moment, every happy moment are your awards. Every challenged moment are your moments to, to strengthen who you are to become more brave. So that's what I would say. And does it need to change? Well, like I said, I think it's always going to change, but as long as you have a positive mindset that there's always a way to keep going and keep moving and keep inspiring and keep letting go, you'll keep going.
0: Rani, what a perfect point to end our conversation. Um, you know, thank you so much for adding your voice to the conversation. And from all of us, incredible luck as you mount, uh, you know, head off to Mount Everest Base Camp. Um, you know, can't can't wait to hear um, how that journey goes. So, you know, it'd be wonderful for you to circle back and share that with us. So, Rani, thank you for being part of the Brave Feminine Leadership Conversation. Thank you so much Melissa and thank you for everything
1: that you do in bringing our voice to the forefront.